All right. Good morning, everyone. Before we get into um, this week's passage, uh, I just wanted to go back real quick. I had a question last week after um, just talking after School of the Word, um, and I, I very much appreciate any questions you guys have or um, topics that you, you hear something and you say, I, I don't know if you meant by this or I think you were wrong on this. I definitely am wrong sometimes, so um, please feel free to come up and talk to me. Miss Anna comes and tells me I'm wrong all the time. <laughs> she does not. She does not. That was a lie. Um, but but come come ask questions. Um, this is very much a class, and uh, and I'm learning all the time as I'm teaching. So so happy for questions. But the question I got last week was, was it right for Sarah to obey Abraham when he told her to lie about being his sister? Remember, I sort of connected those two points last week. Um, and and uh, just thinking about it a little more, we talked afterwards. But uh, just thinking about it some more this week, I want to say a couple things on that. Um, first. I think if you go read the passages where he did that, Genesis 12 and Genesis 20, it's not clear. Um, The passage itself does not say who should have done what. It just tells you what happened. Um, And that doesn't mean to say that there's no moral implications or that you can't think through it and say, was this right, was this wrong, who's who's being portrayed as the bad guy here. Um, the Genesis does that a lot, but, but Sarah is probably the least in view as to whether what she should have done or not done. Um, so the, the ritual passage is unclear, and First Peter itself is not clearly referring to that passage. Right? There, there's, if you read the commentaries, there's at least three different opinions on exactly what Peter has in mind in that passage. In First Peter 3, um, probably what's the most clear is... Uh, that he's referring to Genesis 18:12, where the Lord comes to Abraham and tells him again that he's going to have a son. And then Sarah says, uh, so Sarah laughed to herself saying, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? That's kind of the only time she refers to him as my Lord in the Bible. So um, because of the way Peter phrases it, that's probably what he had in mind. But even that, it's not exactly clear. Um, it's okay to read passages in the Bible and say, I'm not sure if it means this or it means this. Not everything in the Bible is super clear. That's okay. Um, the things that are important are clear. And when we run into a passage that's unclear, sometimes we can go and read other parts of the Bible and say, because all of this was authored by God, because God wrote this whole thing, we know it's not going to contradict itself. So if this passage is unclear... Maybe are there other passages that can give us some insight into maybe not exactly what it does mean, but the boundaries on what it can't mean. Um, so for this passage, I would, I would say a couple things kind of can give us boundaries around what, how we should understand this. Um, when you read Genesis 12 and 20, it's clear at least that lying about being a sister was not a good idea. Right? If you look at the outcome of it, um, the kings of Egypt and Gerar, the, the non-chosen, are very clear. What are you doing, Abraham? Like, they get plagues, and they come back to Abraham, and they're like, come on, man, why, what are you doing? Why did you tell us this? Um, and so it's clear from the narrative that this was not a good idea, which makes it pretty unlikely that Peter would have looked at that passage and said, like, be like, just like that story. That's probably not what he has in mind when he's commending us to be like Sarah. Um, is a story where the outcome of what she did was a bad outcome, whether or not she was wrong exactly in having done it or not. 
The other thing that's clear is from Peter himself would say, we are not to obey human authority when it causes us to disobey God and to sin. Remember when Peter and the disciples are brought before the high priests in Jerusalem after Jesus has died and they're proclaiming his resurrection. And the priests tell them to stop talking about Jesus. What does Peter say? Acts 5.29, he says, We must obey God rather than men. So it's clear, if you come up to an instance where a human authority, a husband, a government, something else, is telling you to do something that would be sin, you must obey God and not obey that human authority. So what is clear is, wives here today, if your husband tells you, to lie about being his sister so that someone else doesn't kill him and he can take you home, you shouldn't do that. That would be sin for you because you've read this story, because you heard what Peter said, you know that would be wrong and it is not right for you to obey even your husband if he's telling you to do something that is a sin. What first Peter was getting at is that even if you must disobey, you do so respectfully and gently. You don't need to make a big fuss about it and call him out and and undermine his general authority, even if you can't obey in this instance. First, Peter is interested in the attitude you have relating to authority in general, that in the moment where you must disobey, and you're probably not going to be comfortable in that moment, what you're called to be is a reflection of Jesus Christ who was gentle and lowly in the way that you respond to the authority that's trying to get you to disobey. So um, that would be sort of my, my caveat clarification of, of the connection I made between those two passages last week. Getting into this week, um, we're going to finish out 1 Peter 3 and all the way through 4. So again, I have a lot of verses to get through this morning. Um, and a, a little recap again to how we've gotten here. Peter is writing to encourage the church in Asia Minor, which is mostly the country of Turkey today, um, to encourage the church who's being persecuted by reminding them of their hope in Jesus Christ and what he has done for them. And he's writing in this section to help them understand how it can be that they are both chosen to be a holy nation and a people for God's possession and experience suffering and feel that they are strangers and aliens even in their hometowns. How can those things be true at the same time? And so he's helping them retell their story and see how what Christ has done and their following of him changes the way they understand where they're living today. I mean, so what we're going to get into, we saw last week that he's redefined their definition of freedom that they're not free from the problems and the persecution and the suffering in the world. They are free from sin because of what Christ has done. And they are free to live even in their suffering as examples of Jesus Christ. That the way they bear suffering is a witness to the way Christ bore suffering for us to bring goodness out of persecution, to bring life out of death. But today what we're going to see is not only is suffering an opportunity to bear witness to Christ, Peter is going to redefine suffering as blessing for those of us who follow Christ. And how can that be? How can suffering be a blessing 
for us. We're going to go through this and see it in the passage, but I think a helpful illustration up front to kind of think about what Peter is getting us to see is uh, it's kind of like waiting in a line. Have you ever been waiting in a line for something that that you really wanted to go see? Maybe at a a theme park, not at Disney, Peter. We're not going to Disney, but um, (laughs) maybe at a water park (laughs) where you're waiting to get up to the top of the slide uh, and you're standing out in the heat with all of these other people who are sweating. Maybe you're waiting downtown to go to breakfast at Mother's. Whatever it is that you're waiting in a line for, you know that experience. And what is it like to wait in a line? It's, it's kind of, what was that? I missed that. It's easy. It's easy for Peter to wait in line. Peter doesn't wait in lines. Peter just stays at his house. It, what is, it, to wait in a line, it's kind of uncomfortable, right? right? It's, it's not a great experience standing and waiting in a line. Hopefully you're not the person making the experience worse for everyone around you. But in no case is it fun to wait in a line. But, hopefully, you're in line for something that's worth it. And so your experience of waiting in line is shaped by where this line is taking you. And so, yes, this might be uncomfortable, but that's okay. I don't mind the difficulty. I don't mind the sun because I'm so aware of where I'm going right now. That this line is taking me to blessing. And that's, I think, how Peter wants us to see suffering. That when you encounter suffering in this world, it should be a reminder that you are following Christ, the one who has called us not just straight to life, but to get to life that goes through death. So we'll see that as we get into this passage, starting here in 1 Peter 3, 9. It says, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, Bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. One thing to note as we start here, it's going to be prominent through the rest of this section, but there are two groups here, right? There are those who do righteous and those who do evil, who are righteous. And, and both of those groups are going to face suffering of some sort, right? The, the, those who are, do evil, it says the Lord is opposed to them. Right, so they are going to face suffering as well. But what's surprising here is that it's not only the evil who face suffering, but the righteous as well. Peter here is quoting from Psalm 34. These are verses 12 through 16 in Psalm 34. But if you go down in Psalm 34 to verse 19, it says this, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. And that's the difference. Those who suffer for righteous, when the righteous suffer, they suffer differently because the Lord hears them. The Lord delivers them. I think this is a little out of order in your notes, but but if you go back up a couple of verses, Psalm 34, he says, The righteous cry out and the Lord hears them. He delivers them from all their trouble. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed 
in spirit. I was noticing this last week as we were reading through the pre- previous verses in 1 Peter. But in 1 Peter 2 verse 20, when he's talking to servants about how they are to endure unjust treatment by their masters, he says, But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. And when he's speaking to wives, he gives the same encouragement. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. When we suffer for doing good, when we suffer in following Christ, God sees us. God hears us. God is near to us. And that is makes all the difference. Because that tells us that we still have hope. And so how do we suffer? In light, that, knowing that God knows us. Read this next section. First Peter 3, starting in 13. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil." How do we suffer? Knowing that God sees us. What are the implications of how we should endure our suffering here? He gives us two things, at least. First, have no fear of them. Because God sees you. Because God hears you. Because God knows where you are. It does not matter what anyone around you is doing. Because we know where this line is leading. This current moment is uncomfortable. It's going to be. That's what God has promised us. Those who follow me, it's called to bear your cross and follow Christ. But we don't just follow him to death. We follow him to resurrection. So no matter what happens here, we don't need to fear. Because we know where the end of this line is. And knowing that, we can be gentle and respectful in our response. We don't need to stand on our rights. We don't need to fight for this world to be our home. It's okay that it doesn't feel comfortable all the time. And when people revile us, we can respond in a way that tells them, that demonstrates to them that we have a hope. In such a way that they're going to ask us about it. Imagine, who's going to be asking the Paul's, Peter's readers about their hope? Maybe the same people who are persecuting them, who are excluding them from the ability to participate in the trade of the town and boycotting their businesses because they're not participating in the temple. Or, or the people who just stood by and let it happen and didn't say anything. And why are they going to ask? Well, they're not going to ask, how come you're staying away and doing all this different Christian stuff? They think that's a bad idea. What are they going to ask about? They treated you terribly, and you didn't fight back. You responded gently. They said terrible things about you. You had nothing but kind things to say, nothing but hopeful things to say, nothing but encouragement. 
Where did that come from? They're not going to ask us why we do what's right. That's expected, or maybe even weird. They're going to ask us why we responded in such an, an unexpected way when we were mistreated. That's the hope that we have. That's what we are called to defend, and that's how we are called to respond, not just because it's the right thing to do, but because we know where we are going. And we're so confident in that. We're free to be free from sin and bear witness to Christ here. And then he gives us a picture to encourage us as we do that. As we go through this, I'm just going to warn you ahead of time, this is another confusing passage. It's going to be another section where I'm going to say, I'm not totally sure everything he's talking about here. And I think that's okay, because Martin Luther didn't either. Um, he said he was not quite sure what Peter meant by some parts of this passage. But, but I think we're still going to be able to see that he's still talking about this main idea as we walk through it. So let's read, starting in verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Though the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. All right, now can you guess which part? I don't know exactly what he means. I'm not exactly sure who the spirits are or where Jesus went to proclaim to them. There are varied opinions on that. Some think this is um, what, what Peter may have gone, or Jesus may have gone in his resurrection to proclaim to those who had died and were waiting in Sheol. Um, that's a possible explanation. It, it could just be that these are um, fallen angels, that Jesus is sort of declaring his victory over in all of these situations. Um, you can have different opinions on that. I, I have a leaning, but it, it it's not the main point of the passage. What I think is clear here is that this is a picture that we will be brought safely through our suffering because that's what Jesus does. There's, there's three groups of people listed here. Right? First, there is Jesus who, who suffered for sins that he might bring us to God. So back to this picture, he keeps going back to Jesus. He died and rose again to bring life for us. And then he references Noah, who suffered for obeying God in the days when he was building the ark and then went into a flood for days and days and weeks and months, but came safely through the waters. And finally, he says, and this is you, church. This corresponds to you. You who are now suffering, but you appeal to God by baptism and you are saved. Do you see the pattern here? There's three people, all of whom experiencing suffering and come safely through. That's the picture that we are to take. When we go to look at our lives and say, how do I understand this difficulty? How do I understand what this moment feels like? He says, it's just like Jesus. It's just like Noah. You're in the flood right now. You're in the midst of difficulty. You're in the midst of suffering. But remember, I bring my people through. 
you will come safely to the end. You might be waiting and it might be raining for 40 days and you see nothing but waters rising and rising and rising. But remember, I bring you safely through. This is what you were baptized into. And he relates baptism here. Baptism is sort of an initiation, right? It, it's sort of bringing you into the fold. That's, that's how we identify ourselves as Christians. And the initiation ceremony tends to relate to or correspond to what it is you're actually being brought into. Again, we are being brought. What do we say when we baptize people? You're buried with him in Christ, and then you're raised to new life. Both parts are important. First, we are buried, and then we are raised. And sometimes this part feels like the burying part. Sometimes it feels like you're going into the flood. But remember, you're coming safely out. This is what we have been brought into. This is not surprising that this death comes first. But as we are buried, we know we will be raised. And so he tells us not to retreat from the path that leads to suffering. So here in 1 Peter 4, starting in verse 1, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourself with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to these, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. All right, up front, what does it mean here that those who have suffered in the flesh have ceased from sin? Right, does that, they can't mean all suffering, means you've ceased from sin, right? Because remember, there's two groups, and both of them suffer, the righteous and those who do evil. Those who do evil suffer because they are opposed by God. So Peter can't mean here that all suffering means you've ceased from sin, that, that when God is opposing you because of your sin, that means you've ceased from sin. That wouldn't make any sense. So what does he mean? Well, he uses a particular phrase here when he says, those who have suffered in the flesh. And there's a whole discussion on what that Greek word is. It's, it's sarks, and there's, should that be distinguished from the word that means flesh versus body? That's another interesting discussion that I would commend you to study on your own. Um, but I'm not an expert in that, and, and I don't think you need that to understand this passage here, because he uses that phrase twice. He says, Christ suffered in the flesh. And so those who suffered in the flesh. So what kind of suffering is he talking about? The same kind of suffering that Christ experienced. Those who suffered like Christ. Those who suffer with Christ and because of Christ. You're identified with Christ in your suffering. And this would have been a clear choice for those who were reading it in the first century. Because remember, why are they suffering? Because they are Christians. And so they have a clear choice. You can identify with Christ and face persecution. 
or you can just live like everybody else. What are you going to choose? Are you going to suffer like Christ, or are you going to live on your own, just like everyone else? That's the kind of suffering that's being described here. Suffering for identifying with, choosing, and following Christ. And what Peter is trying to do here is show us there's an end to that other line too. Right? You can choose to follow Christ and you'll face suffering. And that means you've ceased from sin because you've identified with Christ. Not in every instance, but you are abstaining from this way of life. You're not choosing to live in all of these normal, socially acceptable sins that everyone else is surprised you're not participating with them in. And that's causing you to suffer. But remember, those who are living in this way of debauchery, in this way of sin, in this way of worshiping idols and participating in drunken parties to commune with their gods, there's an end to that line too. And what's the end of that line? It's judgment. They will be Judge. They will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. And so he's reminding them, you must not live like this. There's only two ways to live. And, and we need to take that seriously as well. We don't have the same sort of, um, what would might read as sort of shocking sins to live in today, right? Like we don't, there's not probably a, a big drunken orgy to go participate in worship to some pagan god. That's not your choice. But this was a socially acceptable sin. Right? They were surprised you didn't come and do this with them. And we have two ways of living just the same. Our socially acceptable sins look different. It may, it may look like just partying down on Bourbon Street or, or sensuality in the strip club. And it may look like sensuality in the sort of acceptable movies that you watch. It may look just like joining in the slandering that everyone's participating in on Facebook. There's a list of specific sins given here that the, those who follow Christ and have identified with him are to abstain from. And they'll look different for us, but we need to recognize there's only two lines. There's no middle. And if you're in the comfortable looking like everybody else line, you should be concerned about that. There's an end to that line. Either you've chosen to identify with Christ, to participate in his death and suffering, to abstain from sin, or you're in the other line with everybody else, which leads to judgment. And then he tells us not only what we need to avoid, but then he turns and tells us, what do you need to pursue? As you're waiting in line, as you're following Christ, hoping in him, what should you run after in this moment? Starting 1 Peter 4, verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks... As one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now, another quick aside here. When, when Peter says the end of all things is at hand, he doesn't intend to give you any sort of particular time reference. 
I bring that up because he's going to come back to that in Second Peter, where people thought, you kept talking about Jesus coming back like it was happening pretty soon. We're still waiting for that. When is that happening? And Peter reminds them in Second Peter 3.8, he says, Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the, with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. But he's not talking about a specific amount of time. Time is not the main point. If you remember the one thing Jesus said about when the end was going to happen, he said, no one knows. That's not what Peter's talking about here. He's talking not about how long we have until the end. He's telling us that we need to be focused on the end. We need to live in light of the end. Remembering not what you're experiencing right now, not asking how much longer is this line, but remembering where are we going. And as you think of where we are going, how does that affect the way you live now? What should you be pursuing? And he gives us four things to pursue. First, he says, be prayerful. That phrase, be self-controlled and sober-minded. The NIV renders it, be alert and sober-minded so that you can pray. As we are following Christ and living in light of what he's done for us, we need to be talking to him. We need to be praying. We need to be relating to him personally and directly. He tells us we need to be loving above all, he says. And the kind of love that covers a multitude of sins. That's not to say we don't confront sins or, or rebuke and exhort one another, but it, but it does mean, listen, you're standing in this line and it's going to be uncomfortable. People are going to get annoyed, right? It's like you've been on a long road trip. You've kind of just got to let the small stuff go or you're not going to make it, right? Like that's, that's kind of what he's saying here. Love one another. Don't get annoyed about every little offense. As you guys are going to be trapped here on this ship in the middle of this flood for a while. Pursue love. Live with one another in a way that's hospitable. That welcomes people into your life. That, that thinks practically about how to serve them and make them feel comfortable and that they've got a place with you. Don't just defend your own territory, but be kind and hospitable to the people on this ship with you. And serve one another. God has given you gifts to care for one another as we wait for his return. Use those. Use those to care for each other, whether it's teaching, whether it's service, whether it's just the way you're speaking about God to people. Use that to encourage and care for one another as you wait for the end, as you live in light of where you're going. If you look at this illustration and kind of just thinking of, of being stuck on a ship in a flood, what kind of ship do you need for a flood? You guys heard that, that phrase, that this is not a cruise ship, it's a warship. Right? And I appreciate what that's trying to say. That That's saying that this is not comfortable. This is not easy. This is not um, going to be just a fun ride until we get to the end. Right? This is going through death to get to life. But if you read the description here, unless you're someone who've used prayer as a war, as firing your cannons, and if that's what you read when you, if that's what you hear when you read this, amen, yes, thank you. Keep praying. But I think if we're honest, most of us, don't associate prayer with war practically in our lives. When we hear warship, we're looking for an enemy to fight. We're looking for who's done us wrong, that we need to make sure they can't hurt us, that, that this is difficult and we need to make sure nobody's making this any harder. But when I look around in my real life, if I exclude everything I see on a screen, I don't see a lot of enemies to fight. 
There's not a lot of enemies here in this room. There's not a lot of enemies I encounter from Sunday to Saturday. I don't need a warship most of the time. If this is a war, what I need is a hospital ship. I need a ship where I'm not aware of all the wrongs that have been done that need to be attacked. I'm aware of all the needs around me that need to be met. All the people who need to be loved. All the people who need to be welcomed into my life. All the people that God has called me to endure with that just need me to serve them. I think that's the attitude Peter is giving us here. And and as I've read through this passage, this has been the most helpful passage for me personally. Because my life feels like the uncomfortableness of waiting in a line. And I'm aware of the difficulties and the frictions and the needs for love that covers a multitude of sins in my life. And what this has helped me remember is that when life feels that way, I'm right where I'm supposed to be. I'm in the right line. I'm going where God has called me to. And this is not missing the action. This is not missing where I need to be. This is not missing the significance God has called me or, or that I've just chosen a place that's too difficult for me. This is exactly where God has called me because he's called me not to avoid difficulty, not to go take the hill, but to live as a witness to Jesus Christ, particularly in the way that I endure suffering and difficulty, in a way that I respond when life is uncomfortable and unfulfilling. And this passage tells me that when I need to be prayerful and loving and hospitable and servant-hearted, I'm exactly where God has called me to be. And then he brings it all together. First Peter four twelve through the end of the chapter. He said, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or as a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. I have so little to add to this passage. Um, It's just such a good summary at the end of this reading. And if you've understood what Peter has been trying to get us to see all along, you won't be surprised. When life is difficult, when life uh, is full of suffering, when it doesn't look like what you might imagine a chosen race is going to look like, when everyone around looks like they're living a more comfortable life than you, don't be surprised. Understand what you've been called to, what you've been called from, that you've been set free from sin, to live not free from the difficulty of this world, but as a witness to Christ in this world. That's exactly what God has called us to do. And live with the end in view. Both of these lines have an end. Those who are living comfortably now, who've avoided suffering because they're not trying to follow Christ, 
Well, their end is judgment. Their line has an end as well. But for those of us who are following God, we entrust ourselves to him. And the Spirit is reminding us that this is our story. That we follow God through suffering. And that we hope in the resurrected life. And as we live in that hope, we live as witnesses of Jesus Christ in this world. Free from sin, free to live as witnesses to Christ. Not surprised by suffering, but recognizing that suffering is a reminder that we're exactly where God has called us. We're in the right line. We're going to what he has called us to. Our hope in him is sure. I think next week we'll probably finish out First Peter. Um, And so I hope you come back for the conclusion of this book. Thanks.